Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. I'm staring at your face. That's so weird. <laughs> it's so weird. Yes. I love it, though, when we get to do this. So we're going to get to do this twice today. Yes. Listeners, we are recording this <laughs> on the same day that it is coming out. <laughs> it is Tuesday, November 29th. And Nora and I are in Vancouver because you might remember that we have a live show in Vancouver today. Mm-hmm. I... Just finished driving up the coast, the west coast of this giant land. And um, I haven't slept much. So this is going to be a really great podcast. (laughs) But I can see your face. So that's going to be double the amount of energy that I usually have. Uh, And like minus one unit of energy that I usually have. So that that should come out in the wash and I should have regular amount of energy. Mm, Dear listeners, Sandy's eyes are so small that they are half the size of dimes. (laughs) She is tired. But you know what? That energy is real. It's not only is it Vancouver. And I mean, it's been a while since I've been here. I don't know the last time you were here. We've done some virtual stuff. We were at the Vancouver Podcast Festival virtually, which was too bad. During the pandemic. Yes. I mean, it was too bad. It was virtual, not real. Um, and, uh, And there's gonna be a snowstorm. And so I feel very blessed to uh, be on the other side of, you know, I was walking uh, here this morning and I, and I listened to a mom talk to her kid and say, oh, I think we can go sledding this weekend. And the kid's like, oh, okay. And she says, we'll have to find you some snow pants and some good mitts. And I'm like, wow, imagine having a kid and not having 10 pairs of snow pants because you live in Vancouver. Snow is totally weird. Look, I am very glad that while driving up here, I missed the 20 centimeters of snow that's supposed to fall today. 20 yes. centimeters of snow. That is wild. So, you know, we brought we brought humans. We brought, brought weather. We brought recording gear for tonight. We brought all the things. We, we brought warm. And you know what? We've also brought some good topics for today. Uh, this is going to be an episode about many things, as they always are. But I think the majority of the conversation is going to be... The convoy. Oh, God, the convoy. Yeah. And, I, you know, just before we start, I, I think it's, a, it's worth mentioning, you know, as the vaccine mandate stuff has kind of worked its way out and people don't need to be vaccinated in a lot of jobs, I'm finding that the people that I know who are the most, like, pulled by their vaccine, their non-vaccine identity are becoming, like, really, really even weirder about like how all of a sudden it doesn't make them a pariah anymore and they have to go back to like being in society and their vaccine status is not like their primary identity because no one cares. It's really an interesting thing to watch. Uh, Well, that or the doubling down on the other side, which is, uh, you know, combing the news for any incident when any type of famous person dies and saying that they were vaxxed. (laughs) That's the other side of it, Um, which is... I don't know. Uh, I guess we'll see where uh, where that sort of identi- identifying goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's a good thing to remember that that is one of the consequences of how we talked about uh, the pandemic, what happened uh, to lead up to uh, the so-called freedom convoy. Mm-hmm. But before we get started, uh, I want to say a thank you. I mean, it's not uh, our usual thank yous. Like we said, we're in Vancouver. So um, sorry uh, to everyone who uh, donated in the last week. We'll get you next week. Yes. Um, uh, it's a little bit of a weird, a weird day. But uh, I did want to thank uh, Bento Box. We're, we're recording at a podcast studio called Bento Box in Vancouver. Thanks. Uh, for heeding the frantic and <laughs> last minute <laughs> call when we realized um, that I uh, didn't pack my recording gear so <laughs> 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 on the trip up to Vancouver. So here we are. Yes. And also for folks who are curious about tonight's show, um, if you are in St. John's, if you are in uh, I mean, if you're like one of the five people that listen to us in Berlin, uh, you're obviously not going to be here tonight. Um, we're not sure we're going to be able to record tonight's show. I brought everything that's necessary to do it. Fingers crossed we'll be able to do it. And we'll probably throw it on as holiday content. Get prepared. We are going to be taking a break for the holidays. It won't be next week. It won't be necessarily very soon. I don't know. We'll see. But we will let you know when we're off for a couple of weeks. And this week, I think we don't have to do a specific Freeland watch because the news that we're going to talk about this week 
really involved her. Christia Freeland was on the stand this week. Christia Freeland was on the stand this week. And um, of course, she's defending the government's decision in the inquiry uh, about the Emergencies Act. She's like, hey, we made the right decision. And did you did you read about why she believes we made the right decision as as finance minister? I did read about it. I believe she mentioned Ukraine. Did you see that? Oh, I might have <laughs> missed that part. OK, wait, you go first. I think I missed that part. Well, so she I mean, so let's back up. So so, so today we're talking about the the, the inquiry. Right. So the, the Freedom Convoy uh, was this menace. Everyone will remember it. Our Ottawa listeners uh, still, I feel, and their bones are like, oh, my God, the Freedom Convoy. Like, why are we still talking about this? We hate that. Yes, of course. Um, part of the Emergencies Act was this automatic trigger to have an inquiry. And so here we are uh, nine months later in the middle of this inquiry. And what is really interesting to me about this process is that it's not just litigating whether or not the Emergencies Act was necessary. That's like on paper what it's supposed to be doing. And that's why someone like Christopher Freeland was on the stand. Justin Trudeau was also on the stand in the past week. But it's also like as as a left wing person, I'm really surprised by the amount of information that they are drawing from the convoy people on the like when they're like trying to ask about their internal plans and what were they doing and and I'm like man imagine that they were using this against us <laughs> you know and so that's kind of one side of this and maybe we can talk about like the implications of that <laughs> then the other side of this is of course trying to figure out was it did it meet some sort of legal threshold of being necessary to clear the, 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 the border blockades and to clear uh, the convoy people in Ottawa? So going back to Freeland, um, th- one of the defenses that I, I saw reported from one of the Toronto Star reporters who was kind of live tweeting what was going on was Freeland is so obsessed with this um, like the end of liberal democracy messaging and was making the point that like our alliances with Ukraine does create, um, I don't know, uh, some sort of threat to Canadian democracy because the enemies of liberal democracy like Russia and China, I guess, will, you know, I don't know, come after us or something like this. And so that's where I mentioned the Ukraine thing, because she just kind of launched that in there as one of her justifications for this like defense of the liberal order. But I suspect you're going to mention her main argument, which I thought was also very interesting and put a lot of um, responsibility on the United States for how the Canadian government managed that whole thing. Which? What? <laughs> which was like, huh? So, so Freeland's main justification is that she gets a phone call from Biden's senior finance guy. Yeah. And he's like, hey, what's up with the... What's up with the blockades? Um, I'm paraphrasing, of course. No, actually, this is a direct quote. He says, hey, what's up with the blockades? And she says, oh, my God, the U.S. is worried. It is time to shut it down. She says, I knew from that phone call that this was a dangerous moment for Canada. And then, you know, as she's talking about it, she's like, because that meant that all trade was threatened and up in the air. This could end like the Canadian economy. This was it. Japan was going to step in. Did you see that? (laughs) Japan is going to be like in there being like, fuck Canada. Japan is now Canada. (laughs) We, the largest trade partner of the United States, it's it's over, folks, because because of a few trucks in in Ottawa and okay not trying to diminish uh, the experience of what was happening in Ottawa but i don't know y'all like apparently we were going okay so we're going to bring down liberal democracy and uh and trade and the canadian economic system as we know it the us is obviously going to be massively impacted you know it's a major trade partner obviously you know all the trade is going up in the air be- because of of the of the free, of the freedom convoy, <laughs> mm-hmm. I I don't know. Mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. a little confused about that. I thought that that was 
a little hyperbole, a kind of tiny bit hyperbole, a little bit of a big lie, a little bit of a giant lie, a giant bit of a little lie. And I think, I think um, that, I mean, that's just par for the course uh, with what, a lot of what we're hearing in this inquiry. I mean, if you've been paying even a little bit of attention, you'll probably have heard that the government has been saying things like, well, the, the RCMP told us that we had to do it. And the RCMP is like, uh, nope, we we were not the ones who said that the government needed to um, to invoke the Emergencies Act. And it's kind of this, you know, everyone in the in the government is pointing fingers at anyone that they can. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear back from the United States. What? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. After this is sort of a testimony from the finance minister, but apparently a, a phone call asking what's going on. That leads to suspend all uh, of the rights of Canadians across the country uh, in an emergency that we would use during wartime. A phone call from the United States. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. So the border blockade that made the most attention in this conversation um, was, of course, Windsor. And the Windsor blockade was really important because it's a really I mean, it's a critical trade route for, for, for trade between Canada and the United States. And not just like regular trade, but we've created this system in Canada and the United States where a car has to cross the border many, many times to get built. And there's something called just-in-time manufacturing. So the people that build cars will like will say that cars will are still cold because they've just come off the trains from the border in Windsor or in Oakville. And they're they're literally like trains are here. You do your work. Trains are gone with the tr- with the cars, and they're and they're sent back to the United States for the next uh, part of the the manufacturing of them. And just in time, manufacturing is really brutal for workers because if there's any kind of delay, and we saw this a lot during the pandemic, delays related to supply chains or related to uh, like COVID illness, meaning that there wasn't enough workers to you know to to do whatever. Um, so a lot of folks at Ford and at Chrysler uh, and at GM found themselves without work, like like days and days and weeks and weeks laid off with no work because of of these supply chains being so fragile. Um, and so like that's not something that anyone was talking about. It was it was no, we have to protect what we've got. We have to protect these supply chains that are really inhumane, that um, that are actually quite vulnerable to these kinds of tactics to a border closure. And then act as if we don't have laws on the books to clear a border blockade. Like this is where I get really confused because it's like the entrenchment that happened in Ottawa. Um, you know, everyone can agree should not have happened. Uh, did not happen in other cities. Other cities did put heavy trucks in different parts of the downtown to make sure that there would be no entrenchment of um, of a convoy. And then you've got the the, the Coots border block, uh, blockade and the Windsor blockade, and. In the retelling of all of this during the, the inquiry, it's it's rarely mentioned that you had like the the the, the blockades being cleared and then the, the Emergencies Act being invoked, then the blockades being gone, and then the vote to invoke the act. Like there was a couple of days between there. And by the time the vote actually happened, I mean even Ottawa was being cleared. So, you know, like what was necessary? What was what was what was the reason for invoking this act other than my cynical reading of it, which was politics and PR and Freeland's testimony and Trudeau's testimony as well, because he echoed many of the same things uh, other than Trudeau saying, like, you know, he was working in good, good conscience and he's proud of what he did and all this kind of stuff, defending his decision, which is what you would expect. Those like it doesn't hold up to the fact that all of the laws on the books would have allowed for the bouncy castles and the children to be cleared out of the Windsor blockade. All of the laws in the books would have allowed for joint integrated units of policing like we have seen for many events, like all of the G20s and the G8s. And whenever they just need to have an integrated policing force, they just make it. None of that's the message. And then way more frustrating from my perspective is how mainstream journalists have been reporting this, which has been so focused on the theatrics, the craziness, the ridiculousness of the convoy lawyers, of the convoy people themselves, as if it's like, whoa, these people are 
on a different planet. <laughs> it's like, y yes, they are. And we, I mean, they didn't come back to earth between fucking February, 2022 and now. Um, and so it's just amplified their message while just completely carrying water for for the for the government and saying here's their justification this totally makes sense yeah i think uh we we should be very careful not to remove our eye from the ball of what this is about which is um did the government uh unnecessarily suspend all of our rights and freedoms and the answer i don't i don't know how you look at that and not say that the answer is yeah, they absolutely did. We also have to remember that one of the tools that they used and one of the things that Christian Freeland was talking about during her testimony was that they used a tool that was uh, that would allow them to suspend the the bank accounts of people who were involved in the convoy. And now again, like uh, Nora and I have talked about this before. The, I mean, the convoy was the weird, weird shit was happening. But at the same time, we have to think about what this does. The The government being able to use the Emergencies Act in this moment is them taking advantage of a moment where they know that their base is highly opposed to the people who they are acting against. But what it does ultimately is it opens up a tool in their toolbox for when they are um, they are facing opposition from anyone in Canada's population. And of course, oftentimes the people who are doing uh, activist movement work that does threaten trade, maybe it's a train blockade. You know, many people, um, indigenous communities have used that tactic multiple times, blocking a highway. I have used that tactic multiple times. I know of other people who have used that tactic multiple times. When we are doing those actions, we tend to have a significant amount of support from people who may otherwise vote liberal. So it's hard for the liberals to take certain types of actions or they need to wait a certain period of time before they do it. They still take actions against us. We still face repression. But there's a level that... Um, the population will accept when it comes to talking about uh, racism or colonization. Now, they have managed to use this particular situation um, and the uh, the public opinion that was facing the people who were who were a part of the freedom convoy to open up a, a level of uh, response uh, tools that we have not seen before using the banking system to uh, to stop people from being in bouncy castles and and again yes i do know that there were some threats that were deeper than that but none of it none of it as nora said was stuff that they couldn't take care of by laws that are already written on the books that they should be able to use uh to to deal with that situation suspending completely suspending um, uh, the rights and freedoms as though this was some sort of wartime measure, as though we were uh, being attacked uh, by a sophisticated militia of, uh, of I don't know, whomever, you know, like some New World Order people from wherever <laughs> who <laughs> okay. are training out in the hinterland. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, like it, it's, it's a strange response and we can't keep our eye off the ball. What the, what is happening in the testimony, what is happening in the media is a refocusing of what we're talking about. And that refocusing is on, aren't these people weird? And it's like, <laughs> as you say, mm -hmm. yes, yes, that doesn't matter. That's not what we're talking about. The, the, the folks who uh, have been um, organizing around uh, anti-vax stuff, around uh, Trudeau being the worst leader in the Western world or whatever, or a fascist or however, you know, the white supremacist stuff, all of that stuff coming together, that is an issue that needs to be taken care of. That is not um, the same issue as what is being talked about in the inquiry. And they're not diametrically opposed. You can say this is a problem over here. Um, all of this hateful organizing, all of this stuff that is uh, completely, um, you know, not talking about 
what we need to do in response to a pandemic, all of the right wing organizing that has happened uh, uh, around the pandemic, that you could be against that and also say, hey, there's a really bad thing that the government did over here. We need to be focused on that. And it would be excellent if the media would focus on it in a way that made sense. But they can't, right? Like, I think that the one thing that has been so obvious to me is that the the obsession with understanding this through a national security lens rather than a social movement lens means that media will always default to the government's position because they they have so successfully framed this as these folks are a threat to national security and uh, and unfortunately a lot of progressive people have jumped onto that and, and agreed with that. You know, I, I, I heard one um, interview with uh, a lawyer from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association who was really challenging whether or not this law was necessary and um, a government lawyer or a CSIS lawyer or something who was insisting it absolutely was or whatever. And it, it, it sounded like they were talking about two completely different situations where like trying to say like people still have these rights. These rights are really important versus this is a national security threat. We needed to deal with it as such. Results in a situation we have Justin Trudeau when he was being questioned saying that, you know, people, of course, people have the right to protest, but you don't have the right to protest to change public policy. <laughs> did you see that? Ooh, no, I did not. Yeah. And then he kind of caught himself and was like, well, protesting without being disruptive to change public policy. And and it, this this is the crux of the issue, right? It's like, you know, if we ref- if we relent and allow the message to be about decorum and proper ways of protesting and and let's say like free speech zones and all these kinds of things that in the last 20 years with our protests have become normalized, then we're fucked on the left. I mean, we are fucked on the left, but then we're like especially fucked. And this is what I'm the most concerned about because you've got like, you know, Andrew Coyne had this this column that that concluded that um, this was necessary, that we should have uh, invoked the act. And his justification for it was because if the act only gave police and security forces the powers that they have already, then what's the problem? Which is just this amazing, and a lot of people were like, yeah, yeah, like that makes sense. I saw a lot of people sharing it. So then we should just have it on all the time. Right. Like (laughs) permanent emergency. Then you're in this fucking like loop of logic where you're like, well, yeah, because all they did was give the tools necessary to to realize what the criminal code always like already allows us to do. And it's like, that is not what happened. And that is not what is at debate. So while all of this is happening, Sandy, I don't know if you saw it, but a lawsuit was just settled with the Montreal police for $3.2 million for the repression during the Maple Spring in 2012. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so like throughout the, the, the Maple Spring, the, the, the student protests of 2012, where you had, um, you know, 80,000 students go on full, full strike, uh, unlimited general sti- strike. And then you had days of strike where you had 400,000 people in the streets of Montreal alone. And then, of course, other parts of the province. There were something like 3,500 people who were um, who were arrested for protesting and before that, the biggest kind of situation of mass arrests in Canada was the G20, where you had 1,100 people arrested. And, you know, we're just seeing like these higher and higher watermarks of mass protests. And then you have the Ferry Creek protests with, again, hundreds of people being being arrested for protesting old growth forest logging. Like this is becoming more and more and more and more and more and more normalized. And and when you have a media establishment that is obsessed with the Stephanie Carvins of the world, these national security experts who were like, I once had level four clearance for CSIS or whatever the fuck they always say online. When all of your analysis comes from national security experts, all of these people who are fucking working for the establishment, the security establishment, who, by the way, have like demonstrated their fucking complete uselessness because they aren't actually doing anything about what I think most Canadians would consider like the big quote unquote terror threats, which is like, you know, far right, right wing organizing, far right, uh, white supremacist organizing. Then you completely don't understand the social movement side of this stuff. Where are these people coming from? Why was their movement so imp- impactful? Why, um, why are, are they so um, loyal to their cause? 
Like as a as a social movement person, it's fucking obvious to me. I understand where that comes from. I understand acting out against the government's obsession with vaccines, their obsession with individualized measures like masking and like socially distancing. I understand all. I wrote a fucking book about it. And yet no one is allowed to talk about these issues from a left wing perspective in the mainstream media. And instead, it is all coded as national security. And then left wing people get caught up in that and say, well, actually, there were probably guns in Ottawa. And it's like, that is not that's not the way to look at this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the other another thing that uh, Trudeau said that was uh, interesting during his testimony um, is that he he believes that future governments are going to take a look at this experience and decide that in a national emergency that it is not worth it to invoke the act. Huh? Mm. What? Mm-hmm. He said that? He said that. Like by accident? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the quote. He would say, he says, when there's a national emergency and serious threats of violence to Canadians and you have a tool that you should use, and this is his justification. How would I explain it to a family of a police officer who's killed? So, or a grandmother who got run over trying to stop a truck or a protester that was killed? What? What? Uh, what? Yeah. Remember those incidents that happened? Uh, sorry. Like uh, those are like three very different kinds of violence. <laughs> yes. True. <laughs> um, and um, no, I mean, that woman, I think, stopped the trucks. I don't think they killed her. No, that's true. And that was cool. That she stopped those trucks. Yeah. That popular uprising was really neat. Yeah. And, and also I saw people being like, well, obviously the government was worried when the Battle of Billings Bridge showed that Ottawans were ready to defend themselves. And it's like, yes. <laughs> so it's, I, I mean, one, Justin Trudeau, no. <laughs> no, no, that is not what's going to happen. The government that's coming in after you, okay, uh, <laughs> oh, the Portland Bear government is not going to look at this situation and be like, man, they faced a lot of a lot of shit. We, we are never going to use the Emergencies Act um, to 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 repress some sort of protest. In fact, they're. They're Very fucking excited. doing it. They, they are, are planning it. <laughs> they are not only going to be able to take y'all to the wall right now for doing something stupid. Um, they're also like, all right, great. That tool is opened. You have crossed that threshold. When they have to deal with it, when they are making new policies that are going to seriously harm us, that are going to seriously harm those of us who struggle the most in our society. And we are going to respond to those things, hopefully, from the left, uh, you know. <laughs> uh. <clears throat> we are going to respond to those things. And when we do, they have another tool. And do you think it is going to be less likely that a conservative government, a government headed up by Pierre Polyver? Every time you say his name, it's always different, and I love Paul that. Yevre. <laughs> Poilver. <laughs> Pili. I don't know, okay? What, do you think that this guy is going to say, no, you know, remember remember how bad it was when they were asked some questions and Christian Freeland cried during the testimony? We We need to hold back. We need to hold back. No, of course not. But it's just, it is weird. It's like, just like... We are asking you questions about how you get to this inquiry and what this does to future governments who see this as a precedent. And you start talking about police officers that died and people getting run over by trucks. That didn't happen, man. <laughs> that did not happen. And if, if the calculus is what could happen, what dangers might arise from any sort of protest. You could take that in any direction. You could make up anything that you want about any sort of people who are coming together as a movement to, uh, to oppose some sort of draconian policy, a stupid policy, or a good policy. You could take that wherever you want. Let's do a thought experiment. No, okay. Yeah, no, this will be fun. So Black Lives Matter Toronto occupies the space outside of police headquarters in Toronto and the poly ever government determines that's an emergency and invokes the emergencies act cracks heads. The campus is cleared eight months later, Sandy Hudson is subpoenaed to a fucking inquiry 
to then answer questions from government lawyers about what was going on behind the scenes? How much coordination did you have? Who are you talking to? Where are you getting your money from? At what point did you decide to do this action that's, you know, very illegal and this action that's maybe kind of illegal? And, and you know, what kind of uh, plan Bs and plan Cs did you have? And, okay, we're finished with Sandy. Now, who else within BLM, the leadership that we're going to talk to? We're going to talk to, let's talk to these, these people. And, uh, oh, this person who wasn't really involved uh, with BLM, but who's like a national kind of person who... Uh, is associated with it. Let's get let's get their opinion to talk about what they thought. I mean, that is dangerous fucking stuff. That's another strange thing that's happening here. Isn't the inquiry supposed to be about the government? Th- this is what I don't understand. It's like I know you're trying to figure out that if like how illegal it was, but why in the fuck would they tell you that? That that is a that's a very weird uh, focus for this uh, in- inquiry to be going down because it is as though you were putting those people on trial, um, which if you're putting those people on trial, you know, put them on trial <laughs> with all the rights that they have uh, f- uh, through a trial. Yeah. But you're not like that. This this act and this part of the act that requires an inquiry is specifically meant to put the government on trial because it is saying you have done something so serious. Uh, you have done something uh, to a level that really does impact average everyday rights that people should be able to rely on that you need to be put on trial to uh, to justify what you have done. It, 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 it should not be based on uh, what it was that the inner workings of the protesters, whatever they were doing, because the government didn't know that. You can't base whether or not the government was right or not on stuff that they didn't know. So why does it matter? The other thing that's really interesting that's being discussed is whether or not this sort of thing should be based on when a protest becomes, quote unquote, violent. There's a lot of discussion about that. And what does it mean for a protest to become violent? What is the line? Is the line of violence you know, th- these are discussions that are ha- being had with the legal experts uh, at the inquiry. Is the line of violence when you um, are are doing a blockade that blocks trade? That's part of the discussion. How is that violence? That is a discussion of violence. Like, I mean, the implications of that for anyone, like whether or not you are sleeping outside the police station, which, yes, uh, we did do for two weeks, stopping um, the uh, uh, stopping um, a highway, uh, stopping uh, a train thoroughfare, or even if it's just a protest that people do that ends up being really, really large and you can't really control it. So it spills out onto the street and it's massive and that impacts economics. There is... Now, potentially, they're discussing that as a justification to essentially do a major crackdown. And again, in a lot of ways, they could already do those major crackdowns. They did in the G20. They They did did that before a single fucking window got smashed. And so what is it that makes this different? I haven't heard it in the inquiry as of yet. I don't know if we're going to get the answer. Like, I'm like really confused about all of the different things that they're focusing on that doesn't seem to be about the ball, which is what the fuck is it that made this an emergency in a way that meant that, you know, rights and freedoms had to be suspended? Well, and I think part of it is uh, was the target, which was downtown Ottawa, because downtown Ottawa is the central cortex of so many things. So, I mean, you got the residents, obviously, who were living in total hell for three weeks. But then you also have part of those residents are, you know, the National Press Corps. A lot of those folks are impacted directly because they live there and they work there. Then you have all of the like the political bureaucracy and 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 the failures of the of Ottawa's mayor. I mean, Jim Watson, rest in peace or whatever the fuck, like obviously like and, and Peter slowly like rest in peace as well. Jesus Christ. I hope you two are like hanging out now, like golfing or something. And um, and like and this is where. This is where you can actually get very cynical about it and say they let this happen this way because they knew that it would be uh, insupportable, like horrible to to live through for the residents and that it would be a big enough issue to justify 
like maximum program fucking oppression, repression. Uh, and we said this last week, right? This is where the liberals play footsies with the far right to justify increasingly repressive tactics. And, um, you know, again, thinking about the G20, they didn't need any of this stuff. I'm not even just like, I mean, Christ, the, the G20 that happened or the G7, I guess, that happened in Charlevoix in Quebec, Quebec City in Charlevoix, the region in 2018. I mean, there was integrated police units everywhere. We lived under police occupation for like 24 hours. It was really weird. There's helicopters flying everywhere. In every corner, there's a bus full of fucking cops. The biggest protest was maybe 500 people. It was very, very small. There was no plans to do a massive protest in the way that we'd seen in Toronto. Um, shops were to told to board everything up to avoid getting the window smashed. So like my main commercial street had just every single like store window was covered in plywood for a small 500 person protest, which would be very normal in Quebec City. It was an integrated policing unit of all three levels of cops. And actually that weekend I'd flo I flew out to um, to Halifax and drove to Anaganish and I was with someone saying, oh, this stretch of highway, there's RCMP like every like kind of point here, here, here to stop speeding or whatever. And he's like, I've never seen so few RCMP on the road. I'm like, they're all in Quebec City right now. Like they, they are all in Quebec City right now. And we know this and we have the budget of what they bought and all the vans they paid for and all this shit. They have these powers. And the fact that we're hearing more, I mean, like hearing Janice McGregor from CBC's reports about how crazy the far right is and like you can't believe that they're saying this stuff and it's theatrics and it's ridiculousness it's like you guys you guys would not know fascism if it bit you on the face and you don't understand what is happening here and you don't understand the reconstruction of canadian society that's happening here and instead uh liberal media journalists liberal politicians are clinging to a canada that doesn't exist anymore in the hopes that they can save it in that way. And as you say, the second Polly ever gets in there, I mean, to be able to declare the emergency and then use the declared emergency in an inquiry later on to like subpoena the people that you're trying to fight to get their internal communications, to get their text messages, to get their, I mean, they're not super sophisticated necessarily. So to get them all on the stand individually to see how they're going to interact in a highly mediatized and publicized uh, in inquiry event, it's like, uh, red flag city <laughs> like oh my god I think it's useful to kind of uh, go back a little bit and discuss what should have happened because I mean we've talked about this on the podcast before and I don't want people to get the the this misconstrued like we are we're not um, defending um, the actions of, of the people who are involved in uh, the trucker convoy, freedom convoy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but we are saying that uh, what the government did was wrong. If the government did was wrong leading up to what's going on, what the media did was wrong leading up to what's going on. And uh, and like everybody was wrong. Like who, who was right? Nobody was right in this situation. And that is the problem. And not having that sort of political analysis is having that removed from this entire process is, I think, uh, a big danger, a big threat, because looking back at the story 10 years down the line when people are trying to understand what happened, uh, I, if, you, if you don't have the correct analysis or at least someone trying to interject with this sort of analysis, then you have a warped idea of what this was. So, you know, Nora, you, you alluded to it earlier I mean, we we shouldn't have gotten to this point at the first in the first instance. OK, if the government really did care about hate, white supremacist organizing, all right, organizing, there are things that they could do. There are things that they could do to impact the success of fascist organizing in this country. They know that they are not doing that. Why? It is helpful to them. It is helpful to them to polarize politics in this way. It is dangerous for the rest of us. We need to be careful not to, to, to be playing this game on the game board that has been set up, which is that if you are, if this, it sounds so, it's like, it's like I'm living in a cartoon, but if you are against masks and if you are against vaccines, then you are a bad person. Like playing Playing politics on that game board, it doesn't make sense. It leads to nothing good. It is 
okay for people to have a negative response to uh, to to the government wanting to force them to do things. That makes sense. That is a like that absolutely makes sense for people to have that sort of reaction. Making them social pariahs as a response isn't going to make them change their minds about getting a vaccine. It's not going to make them change their minds about putting on a mask, but it is going to make them susceptible to organizing that is going to take advantage of that. So that's that's one piece. On the left, we should always be having discussions about any time the government is encroaching on our rights in such a way. And we should also always be having an analysis that rightfully condemns an individualist approach to a collective problem. And we didn't do that effectively. And so we, again, allowed right-wing organizers, white supremacist organizers and fascist organizers to take the, the issue and make it their own. The other thing that's really important uh, that we haven't really discussed in, in this episode, but could have been a large part of this episode, is the involvement of the police in that sort of organizing themselves, uh-huh. which is another reason why this sort of thing would never have worked. You, you cannot. I mean, there is so much. You cannot fight violence with violence and be like, there will be no more violence after that. That's not going to happen. And so if your justification for this whole thing is that was white supremacist organizing and they are nuts and it was alt-right and so we had to send the police in and then through that you realize, oh my God, the police have so many white supremacist people in there and they're, they, they're like in favor and they're helping them out and they're giving like, duh, like, okay, that is also part of the problem. None of this makes any sense. And so you, we have to have that be a part of the analysis so that we can say, what is it that does make sense? What is it that does make sense? What is it that people are responding to when, um, when they are being convinced by alt-right, white supremacist, fascist organizing because they don't want to wear a mask? Mm-hmm. Like, what is that process? That's the thing you have to tackle. And that's not going to be tackled by the Emergencies Act. No. And it's also not going to be t- like tackled by trying to understand what the end game of that is. Is this the national security threat? This is all this is it's these these fundamental issues that this inquiry is dancing around because they have such a narrow understanding of what these threats mean. I mean, I'm not, maybe you saw this, but there was a Email that was shared by senior uh, governmental officials shocked by how many military people were in the vaccine crowd. Yeah, I saw that. (laughs) Or the anti-vaccine crowd. It was like, uh, how are you shocked by this? I'm sorry. If you're shocked by this, you should quit because fuck you. Like you're not paying attention and you're unqualified for your job. Today, this is the benefit of of recording uh, such a hot episode in terms of uh, currency. But today, the Globe Mail reports that... um, they are turning their attention at the inquiry to, quote unquote, cybersecurity experts uh, who, quote, say a federal inquiry should think of social media as the central nervous system of the Freedom Con- Convoy protests. And they quote, uh, I guess they've, they've subpoenaed or asked um, Dax Dorazio from Queen's University, a political scientist who I don't know, I guess, is an expert in cyber stuff. Uh, who said that social media, quote, social media permeated nearly every part of the protest from fundraising, organizing, documenting events and getting around traditional media outlets as a source of information. I think this is a good place to end. Like, OK, so now now the inquiry is into the social media world. And I feel like that's like the moment that you can really say that this is jumping the shark because it's like I, I sorry. Um, you're putting social media on trial now? Like, you're asking for expert from fucking university professors who, I don't know, study this stuff? Like, okay, that seems kind of weird as someone who's, like, very online and and whatever. It's like, okay, so you're an expert and whatever the fuck. And part of whether or not this constituted a national emergency was, like, how online they were? Like, what are the tools to even, like, what would you be combating then? What tools were in the Emergencies Act to... What? Kick people offline? Suspend their Twitter accounts? Uh, 
I don't know, monitor how like fuck Trudeau flags went from Truro to Swift Current to Prince George? Like what? It's like, are you throwing everything at the wall to seeing what sticks or are you actually getting at what I'm worried about, which is this point of everything is a threat. All of these things, any organizing against the status quo in Canada is a threat. And we have to look at the organizing in person, the bouncy castles, the the trucks themselves, and now also social media with fucking random university professors being the experts. I don't know. That seems like kind of bad, uncharted territory that there's no good possible solution to come out of from a government that can't even tax Facebook, let alone what rein in disinformation online. Like, are you kidding me? I, I mean, I just spent most of Nora talking there with my head between my hands. Um, I, <laughs> which I can see because we're in the same room. <laughs> yes. True story. No lies there. I, that is, um, <sighs> You know, we really have to get uh, some some folks who are working in media who understand social movements. Yes. And who are working in political analysis that understand social movements, because uh, anyone who has done uh, any sort of organizing before would be able to tell you that no, it, no, no, social media is not the central nervous system of any of this shit. No, it is a tool. It's something that you use to, you can use it to amplify, you can use it to test things, you can use it to see where you're at, um, in very much the way that um, many of you are being used as tools, um, media, like, because because you you're, you don't understand this issue um, so hard, like, <laughs> like you fail so bad at understanding this, um, that you are able to be used as a tool um, uh, in the arsenal of people who are doing this stuff. No, the organizing happens offline. It has to. It does not happen online. It does not. Ha- they know like everybody, anyone who is doing any sort of change making organizing knows that that stuff could be monitored and can be taken a look at afterwards and what it's not online. And that's just symptom. So if you're going to like trying to take that shit out like okay you're like playing with something that literally makes no sense you guys the military is involved <laughs> like i just <laughs> the police are involved you think that this stuff is happening on whatsapp i mean more likely whatsapp than like uh twitter some of it's happening on whatsapp for sure <laughs> um, but you think this stuff is happening on twitter on facebook that is just a symptom of the issue the issue is not ha- that's not where it's starting or happening. But you know, kudos to this professor from Queens, I guess, uh, for knowing things about social media. <laughs> yeah. So the the inquiry goes on for a little bit longer. I think it's a week or maybe a little bit more, but not much longer than that. And I think if you're watching this and you're watching the analysis from you know, opinion makers in this country or journalists or listening to the line of the government, be extremely skeptical, be extremely skeptical because it is not the, the, the threshold was not, is this bothersome? Is this driving me crazy? Is this making my life unlivable in downtown Ottawa? That's all true. That's what happened. Absolutely. But that's not the threshold for an emergencies act level, nuclear, nuclear level legislative option. And the government is has in its interest, every single thing that's coming out of any government official is going to try and overblow this, has been overblowing this. We actually saw a government official sharing um, information from Bloomberg that overblew the economic impact of the Windsor border crossing. And they were like literally in the email saying, oh, this is probably good for us. It's a little bit overblown. And anybody that's done political work understands how this works. This isn't surprising. But we have to be smarter than this stuff because if you are a social movement activist, if you're if you're making change, you should be able to see through this stuff. The problem is, is that we are so marginalized from these conversations that there will not be a reasonable explanation for this stuff. There will not be Sandy saying this makes no sense after every single intervention from the government side. And in absence of hearing that side of this discussion, 
we risk being turned upside down very easily and we cannot be turned upside down on this. This is new territory. This is bad territory and a poly ever government. I mean, that guy is fucking stroking his knee, I'm sure, every single day uh, to what's going on and how fucking much more he can amp it up. And I'm sorry for using that, um, that, that picture for you all in your mind. The one other thing I would say is that uh, in closing is like, this is not complicated stuff. No, this is really not complicated. It is more complicated than the government is trying to make it seem. And at the same time, less complicated (laughs) than the government is trying to make it seem. The Schrodinger's complicity of protest. Okay, but here's the thing, right? It's like um, things are can be more complicated than this is bad and therefore this is good, which is the response, right? Like this thing over here is really, really bad. So that means this thing over here is really, really good. Life is not that, that simple. Okay. And that is like a flattening of things that doesn't make sense. Let's not be so, uh, you know, confused as for things to be flattened at the same time. Like, you know, we should be able to have um, a level of nuance that allows us to understand how things that we disagree with um, can still be, uh, you know, like you can disagree with the people who are uh, the, the, the freedom convoy, whatever, and also understand that the response to them um, that was repressive is also bad. Like that is not a complicated level of thinking. We do not have to think in binaries. We don't have to think in binaries. It's like not how the world works and uh, it is dumbing us down and it's not cool. So <laughs> let's be a little bit more sophisticated than that and understand that things are rarely as simple as um, the the polarity of politics um, wants us to believe in this day and age. 